0: It looks to us as though Henry VIII began his divorce from Catherine of Aragon not because he'd fallen in love with someone else, but because he'd switched alliance from the Spanish to the French. And of course Catherine had always been the most influential supporter of the Spanish alliance. But then Henry strung his divorce campaign out for months and months, mired in pointless legal and theological arguments. It wasn't getting him a new wife, it wasn't giving him any more control over the English Church but it turned out to be very useful to him as part of his foreign policy. It kept the French loyal to their new English alliance. It also kept the Pope dangling, making him think twice about ever committing himself to
1: the Spanish enemy. And for a while it worked brilliantly. So well that Henry could flatter himself he was playing a leading role in European affairs, and the French army he was helping to finance rolled up the Spanish army that had invaded Italy and pinned it down in Naples. But then, in July 1528, it all started to go wrong. Hello, good
0: to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank.
1: And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Cafe, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us.
0: So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. Henry's divorce case dragged on and on through 1528, apparently getting nowhere. But Henry declared himself highly satisfied. Well, it's always mystified historians. But it was all serving Henry a very useful purpose. It was keeping the French and the Pope dangling, bobbing to Henry's tune. It wasn't even costing him much money, which was good since he didn't have much. Last time he tried to raise money to go to war, there'd been a minor rebellion and he'd collected hardly anything. And while the French army made excellent progress through Italy, the policy was working well. No wonder Henry was satisfied.
1: Wolsey's agents in Rome even succeeded in tricking the Pope into allowing them to hold a trial in England in such a way that Catherine would never be able to appeal to Rome. It was something the Pope's canon lawyers had always ruled out as completely impossible. In June 1528, Stephen Gardiner, the Bishop of Winchester, who was one of Henry's envoys, took the Pope aside. The conversation goes something like this. Look, says Gardiner, the king is losing patience with your cardinal in England, Cardinal Wolsey. We keep trying to get you to let Wolsey decide the case without appeal, and you keep turning us down. Now, if this goes on, Henry will get rid of Wolsey, and that would be very bad for the church. Henry might even take over the English church himself. So, Gardiner continues to the Pope, we have a plan. You issue a commission that allows Wolsey to hear the case without an appeal. He can then show this commission to the king. But, Gardiner told the Pope, he needn't worry about this commission. Wolsey had promised, quotes, never to make process by virtue thereof, or to show it to any person, whereby the least slander may arise or prejudice to the apostolic see, which means the Pope, but only to the king as a means of augmenting his own influence with him. Clement later claimed that Woolsey had promised he would not only show the commission to the king alone, but that he would burn it afterwards.
0: Well, if you believe that's what Woolsey would do, you believe anything. But in June 1528, with the Spanish army in full retreat and the French and English allies looking more and more successful in Italy, the Pope dutifully sign the commission. He confirmed in writing that he would not interfere in any decision found in England.
1: Incredible.
0: When Woolsey's agent wrote to him from Rome with the news, the cardinal wrote in the margin, prudenta factum, cleverly done. Well, soon after, Clement sent Stephen Gardner back to England with yet another order for Woolsey to get on. Hear the case on his own. Leave him out of it. By now, the Spanish, exhausted with endless warfare, had signed a peace treaty with the English, The chances of getting Henry's divorce done were now excellent. But Henry and Woolsey ignored the Pope's advice. It was the third time that year they'd turned down the Pope's urgent request that they get on and sort this case out themselves. Well, the policy of stringing Henry's divorce out was working too well for them. They weren't going to spoil it by closing
1: the case. But then everything changed. On the 13th of July 1528, the French commander in Italy, the Vicomte de Lautrec, was camped outside Naples, He'd conducted a brilliant campaign that had pushed Charles V's Spanish-led army back and back until they were besieged in the town. But that day, Lutrec fell ill. In fact, he went down with malaria. Then his men started catching it, and they were also infected with dysentery and typhus. By the time Lutrec died on the night of the 16th of August, less than a quarter of his army was left. The remaining men melted away, leaving all of their supplies and weapons behind. One witness described them as, quote, less an army than a walking pestilence. Now Charles V's Spanish led army could break out of Naples and begin the reconquest of Italy.
0: Well, Henry's allies, the French, could do very little about it. They were also very fast running out of cash. By November 1528, Louise of Savoy, the French king's domineering mother, was establishing negotiations with her old friend Margaret of Austria, who was Charles V's aunt. Francis, the king himself, was deeply reluctant to make peace with the Spanish, but his mother was realistic about the financial situation. She was determined to give it a go. She consulted neither the Italians, nor what the French called Francis's, quote, good brother and perpetual ally, in other words, King Henry of England. In October 1528, seeing the way the wind was blowing, Wolsey had urgently reminded the French that the whole purpose of Henry's divorce had always been, quotes, to separate forever the houses of England and Burgundy, by which he meant the Spanish. Well, it's an extraordinary telling phrase, but it seems to have been largely overlooked by historians, perhaps because it's hidden away in the letters of Jean du Bellay, the French ambassador in London, which are written in du Bellay's really difficult 16th century French. Now, maybe Wolsey was just trying to get the French on side to prevent them making peace with the Spanish enemy. But if our argument is at all close to the truth, Wolsey was only stating what everybody knew. Henry's divorce had never had anything to do with bedroom politics. It had always been about Henry's shift from a Spanish alliance to a French one. to quotes separate forever the houses of England and Burgundy. So, Woolsey argues, the French shouldn't abandon the English now after all the time and effort Henry had put into his new French alliance. But Wolsey could have saved his breath. Louise, the French king's mother, was too anxious to call off the war with the Spanish and to do a deal with them. She simply ignored him.
1: On the 17th of November, 1528, Ambassador Jean de Belay wrote home that the English were increasingly angry that the French were deserting them. Quotes, it was reported that Francis and the Spanish were making an agreement and leaving England in the lurch. Well, if the unthinkable happened and the French and the Spanish did actually agree to make peace, it would be for the first time in ten years. And it would leave Henry completely isolated. His clever foreign policy worked out with Cardinal Woolsey, trying to hold the balance between France, Spain and the Pope, would be in tatters. Now, all along,
0: we've argued that Henry's divorce from Catherine had much more to do with foreign affairs than with anything else. Certainly much more to do with that than with Henry's mistress, Anne Boleyn. Or with his long-running, rather stuttering campaign to take control over the English church, give himself more power. Well, if we're right, the transformation of the European situation in the autumn of 1528 should have brought about a change in direction in Henry's campaign for divorce. And
1: that's exactly what we find. If the French and the Spanish made peace, it would not only leave Henry completely isolated, he would be completely unable to get the Spanish Catherine out of his court and marry Anne Boleyn or a French princess or anyone else. Suddenly, having turned down every chance the Pope had given them to hear the case in England, Henry and his chief minister Thomas Wolsey were in a hurry to get the case started in London as soon as possible. In November 1528 came the news that the French and the Spanish were beginning peace negotiations. It wasn't exactly a shock, since the French army in Italy had fallen apart, since it had been hit in July with malaria, typhus and dysentery. But it would be a complete disaster if peace talks succeeded, because it would leave Henry totally isolated in Europe. Then there would be very little chance of securing his divorce from Catherine. Henry now needed to get his divorce done quickly in London and then look for a new way to make his influence felt in Europe. He was now in a race against time.
0: Now, back in June, Wolsey's agents in Rome had cleverly tricked the Pope into signing a document that allowed a trial in England without an appeal to Rome. Then they discovered that the Pope had double-crossed them. As we saw last time, the Pope had appointed one of his cardinals, Lorenzo Campeggio, to hear the case in England with Wolsey he was the new cardinal protector for England. You might have expected him to be sympathetic to Henry since the king was paying him a large salary. Well, Pope Clement gave the document promising that there would be no appeal not to Henry's agents, but to Campeggio. Secretly, Clement instructed Campeggio to show it to Henry and then burn it. So that it could never be used. Whatever he did, said Clement, Campeggio mustn't let the Spanish find
1: out that he'd ever signed such a document. Didn't want to fall out with them. So when Campeggio and Woolsey eventually came to hear the case in England, Henry would discover that Catherine could still appeal against the verdict. Then the Pope would be able to decide, after a suitably long period of delay, which side he would back – Henry or Catherine, the English or the Spanish – In fact, what Clement hoped was that by then Henry would have lost interest in this Berlin girl and the whole sorry business would have gone away. Well, what happened
0: in fact was that Cardinal Campeggio went one better. Once he finally got to England at the end of September 1528, he showed the offending commission document to, of all people, the Spanish ambassador in England, Inigo Lopez de Mendoza. And only then did he burn it. Well, Campeggio, as we shall see in a later discussion, had his own career to think of. Keeping in with the Spanish would be important if he was ever, as he hoped, going to get any further in the church, or perhaps make more money from it. So Campeggio had double-crossed the Pope, who'd double-crossed Cardinal Wolsey, who'd first tried to double-cross him. Sounds like an episode of the Borgias, except of course that Clement was a Medici.
1: But now events began to quicken up. The Spanish were able to play a joker of their own. Clement's offending commission document had set out various details about the case and the grounds on which it would be heard. The Pope had, in fact, framed the instruction very narrowly. The details are too came for words and certainly too obscure for us to get into here, but perhaps knowing what they now did, the Spanish lawyers suddenly came up with a way to make the whole case much more difficult to solve. Out of the blue, in November 1528, Catherine revealed that she had miraculously come across a new document.
0: Well, Catherine's story went like this. This new document, the so-called papal brief, had been written in 1504, at the time of her original engagement to Henry. It was meant to reassure her mother, Isabella of Castile, that the engagement really was permissible, even though Catherine had formerly been married to Henry's brother. Well, the wording of this Spanish brief differed slightly but significantly from all the other documents in the case. And, of course, surprise, surprise, it just happened to make the trial, under the narrow terms the Pope had set out, impossible. Well, the story Catherine told was that the Spanish brief had somehow been lost for many years in the papers of Rodrigo de Puebla. In 1504, he'd been in England serving as Spanish ambassador, He had indeed been deeply involved in the negotiations for Catherine's engagement to Henry, and he had, according to the historian Garrett Mattingly, kept a remarkably good set of records.
1: Catherine never liked de Puebla, and he died in 1509, the year she married Henry. Everybody apparently forgot all about the all-important papal brief. But oh so remarkably, de Puebla's sons had accidentally come across it among his papers many years later. For some unexplained reason they had for no particular reason, and this is where the story begins to be hard to believe, decided to send it to Charles V early in 1527. Now that was, by coincidence, just before anyone had heard about Henry's campaign to divorce Catherine. Charles had then rather inexplicably done nothing about it and had never mentioned it, despite Henry's long-running campaign for a divorce. But, in some mysterious way, Catherine had just now, in 1528, got to hear about it. In April or May that year, she claimed she'd obtained a copy from the Spanish ambassador, although she'd rather curiously at the time said nothing at all about it. Of course, May 1528 was, coincidentally, just before Clement had issued the supposedly secret commission for Henry's divorce to be tried once and for all in England. So, said the Spanish, of course, the document couldn't possibly be a forgery since it had been found before Henry's case began and came into Catherine's hands before Clement signed the commission. Now, if all that sounds unlikely to you, it's also true that Charles V never let
0: anyone see the original document he was now supposed to have in his possession. No trace of it has ever apparently been found in any archive, including the Vatican. So it's all the more, shall we say, surprising that historians accept it at face value, which they seem to do. Henry's team called it the magic brief. However, the appearance of the brief, wrote Garrett Mattingly, exploded among Henry's legal experts like a bombshell. Thing was, whether it was genuine or not, it delayed everything. New terms had to be got from the Pope to encompass this magic brief, whatever it was, within the commission for the trial, just in case. Henry was
1: naturally anxious to get hold of it. He said that he wanted to establish whether or not it was genuine. Of course, in reality, had it been authentic, Henry intended to destroy it. So he ordered Catherine to write a letter to Charles, telling him to hand it over. He threatened to disinherit their daughter Mary if she didn't write it. Tough stuff. Catherine wrote the letter, but she then arranged to meet the Spanish ambassador secretly in Greenwich. He came in disguise. Catherine gave him an unwritten message to take to Charles. Whatever her official letter might say about handing over the brief, off the record, she told her nephew, quote, never to let the original leave your hands because these people will try anything to get hold of it. Catherine took the added precaution of sending not one messenger to Charles, but two, which was just as well. Her first messenger sent through France suffered a mysterious fall. The second, her English chaplain Thomas Abel, got through and duly passed on to Charles her unwritten message. Ignore the official letter, he said. Quotes, she neither says, nor writes, nor signs anything but what the king commands her. To this she is compelled by solemn oath. Charles must not hand over the original. Well, if the original ever in fact existed, Charles kept it. He sent Abel back with instructions for Catherine not to cooperate with the hearing in London, since it was obvious what the outcome would be.
0: By the spring of 1529, while the trial itself was delayed by all this behind-the-scenes legal wrangling, international events were picking up speed. On the 9th of May 1529, Pope Clement began negotiations to form a formal alliance with Charles. King Francis's mother, Louise, and Charlie's aunt, Margaret, were still shouting at each other in evil-tempered talks, but there was no time to lose if Henry was going to get his divorce done before it was too late. The trial of Henry's divorce case finally began in London on the 31st of May 1529. The details of the trial, which was very publicly held at Blackfriars in London, are enormously complicated. It's a good story, and we'll take a look at some of it anyway in our discussion on Pope Clement. But for now, all we need to know is that it was a desperate race against time. Henry had to get the case done before the French signed peace with the Spanish and left him completely in the
1: lurch. But three weeks after the trial began, on the 21st of June 1529, the Spanish inflicted a crushing defeat on the French at Landriano in Italy. Now the negotiations between them picked up speed. Luisa Savoy and Margaret of Austria were meeting in Cambrai, a neutral town. Their extensive entourage were housed on opposite sides of a street and they met in neutral grounds in mid-air in a temporary bridge between them. The French describe the negotiations as houleuse, stormy. At one point, Louise packs her bags and leaves town, but within a couple of days, the ladies are back at their arguing. Henry sent his brother-in-law, the Duke of Suffolk, to try to slow things down while he finished his trial. But wily old Louise packs Suffolk off gambling with her son Francis, the king, while she went head-to-head with Margaret of Austria. And Woolsey sent pleading messages that his representatives, who included Thomas More, were old and would take some time to reach Cambrai. Well, More was 51. Please would Louise wait for them to arrive? But Louise ignored them and told the Spanish that Henry's problems were not even on the agenda.
0: On the 29th of June, 1529, things got much worse for Henry. Pope Clement and Charles, King of Spain, formally signed a treaty at Barcelona. The Pope declared that he would live and die as he had for so long threatened an imperialist. He meant an ally of Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor. While the pressure on Henry was now becoming intolerable. By the 19th of July 1529, it was clear that a peace between the French and Spanish ladies would also very soon be signed in Cambrai. And also that Catherine had got a message to Rome appealing to the Pope. Well, now, it was inevitable that Pope Clement would, at any moment, summon the divorce trial to Rome, which was crawling with his new Spanish allies. Henry was bound to lose. With no time to waste, Henry announced that the Blackfriars trial had to reach a conclusion within
1: a week. But, just four days later, the court was suddenly adjourned for the summer, without reaching a verdict. The usual story is that Cardinal Campeggio adjourned the court for the summer holidays. It's true London was no place to be in the summer. The poor cardinal's gout had been so bad that he'd had to be carried to and from the courtroom. He also explained that the case was so tricky that he needed to talk to the Pope about it.
0: But historians like Peter Gwynne and Stephen Gunn have a different version. They claim that Henry himself had pulled the plug. Better to have the case adjourned, even to Rome, than have Compeggio decided against him in London. Mm-hmm. Dig deeper and another whole lair appears... From Campeggio's own letters, and those of the Frenchman Jean de Belay, we know that in fact Campeggio had been about to decide the case in Henry's favour. The king was on the point of winning. But then, according to the Frenchman du Belay, on the 22nd of July, everything had changed. That day, news had arrived from Rome that Clement was about to die. He'd been seriously ill in January, February and March, and his illness had returned late in June.
1: Well, Campeggio was terrified. Dubelle explained that if Clement died and there were a new Pope, then Campeggio needed to be in Rome, quotes, Avoir sa part au gâteau, to have his share of the cake. It wasn't that Campeggio hoped to be elected Pope himself, it was that Rome was crawling with the Spanish and they would dictate who the next Pope was. The very last thing Campeggio was going to do at that moment was upset the Spanish. The simplest thing for him to do was to pass a verdict for Catherine, and get back to Rome as fast as his gouty legs would carry him. It shouldn't surprise us. The French king had warned Henry about Campeggio, and we haven't forgotten how Campeggio had leaked the Pope's secret crucial document to the Spanish when he'd arrived in England.
0: Well, no wonder Henry pulled the plug first. Actually, Clement recovered. But from Campeggio's point of view, crossing over to the Spanish side turned out to be a shrewd move. Charles V rewarded him with a castle, made him a bishop in three places at the same time, including the island of Crete, and made his son Bishop of Majorca. Campeggio had been married before becoming a priest. What mattered for Henry was that, although he didn't yet know it, on the 16th of July the Pope had already called his case to Rome. The messengers were on the way. And just ten days after the adjournment of the Blackfriars' trial, on the 3rd of August 1529, Louise of Savoy and Margaret of Austria agreed peace terms between France and Spain. Their treaty was publicly proclaimed in the Cathedral of Cambrai. They sang at a diem and threw pieces of gold to the crowds.
1: So the pro-French policy Henry and Wolsey had pursued for the last five years had dramatically and completely collapsed their clever foreign policy trick of backing the French against the Spanish and dragging out the divorce to keep the French and the Pope in Henry's orbit had come to nothing. Now Henry faced the prospect of the Pope refusing him a divorce, finding himself isolated in Europe and being stuck forever with his Spanish queen. Actually, Henry had signed his own peace with the Spanish back in June 1528, so he could hardly complain if the French did the same. But Jean de Bellay, French ambassador in England, reported that the English were shouting angrily at him, that the French had let them down. Henry had been betrayed. Somebody had to be to blame.
0: It was, of course, Cardinal Wolsey who paid the price. Throughout the summer, plots had gathered pace to get rid of him. He'd held Henry's government together for 15 years, since at least 1514, and in that time he'd made plenty of enemies. And with the foreign policy fiasco of 1529, the court factions at last found a way to get rid of him. In fact, the one and only thing they could agree on was blaming Wolsey for the whole foreign policy disaster. The king wanted no quarrel with his old friend the cardinal, but Wolsey's enemies were winding up for a show trial. From the beginning of July, he was virtually a prisoner in his Hampton Court palace. Stephen Gardiner, who we last saw you remember, trying to double cross the Pope in Rome, replaced Wolsey as the king's private secretary, though actually he still quietly sent most of the king's papers to Wolsey to sort out. In february fifteen thirty, the king would pardon Wolsey for any wrongdoing, something that's often forgotten. But Wolsey retreated to York, where he was Archbishop, though he'd never set foot in the place. Less than a year later he died, travelling south to face new charges. But it's what happens next in 1529 that's more significant for us. Or rather, what doesn't happen next. By the summer of 1529, Henry's foreign policy had collapsed and Wolsey had paid the price. Henry was isolated and his divorce was completely stalled. The Pope, having signed an alliance with the Spanish, had called the case to Rome.
1: Writing to Paris on the 23rd of August 1529, the French ambassador Jean Du Belay explained that he expected Henry to call a Parliament any day and, quotes, then act with absolute power for want of any justice from the Pope over the divorce. In the coming weeks, Du Bellay expected Henry to use Parliament to seize control of the English Church and give himself a divorce. It would be a giant stride toward giving himself absolute power, the Renaissance ideal of ruling like an ancient Roman emperor. Historians have called it imperium, and many have thought it had been Henry's reason for getting into the divorce in the first place. It's worth noting, incidentally, that for some decades in the middle of the last century, everyone believed that it was Thomas Cromwell who'd had the idea of using the English parliament to take over the church. Well, that's because a Cambridge historian, Geoffrey Elton, wrote a series of studies that cast Cromwell as an administrative genius. According to Elton, Cromwell, working to a brilliant master plan, revolutionised the King's finances, Privy Council, Parliament, regional administration and pretty much everything else. According to Elton, using the Parliament to legislate Henry as head of the church was another stroke of Cromwell's genius. It finally cut the Gordian knot of the divorce and solved the problem Henry had wrestled with for so many years. Nowadays, of course, Thomas Cromwell
0: has many admirers, noticeably among the generation who grew up reading Elton's Tudor Revolution in Government when they were at school. The fact is, however, that for many years, professional academic historians have comprehensively dismantled and disproved pretty much every word that Elton ever wrote. His many books are nowadays almost universally admired and equally almost universally regarded as inaccurate and wrong. Whatever his newfound literary fame, the Thomas Cromwell of history has shrunk and shrunk. It's now hard to find anything that he's supposed to have done that wasn't either already happening in one way or another, or lasted for no more than a couple of years, or didn't turn out catastrophically badly. And the truth is that no historian other than Elton ever believed that there was a Cromwellian master plan. Well, here we have another example. Years before Cromwell is supposed to have had his stroke of genius, long before he was anything other than a minor clerk at court, the French ambassador was reporting that everyone was going round saying that Parliament should legislate Henry out of his problem and solve the divorce. So much for it being Thomas Cromwell's stroke of genius. Historian Stephen Gunn says that the idea of using Parliament was probably being put about by the Berlins. But whether it was or not, Plenty of people in 1529 could work out that it was the obvious thing to do if Henry wanted a divorce.
1: It was also the obvious thing to do if Henry was set on seizing the church and taking power for himself, as many historians believe. He no longer had anything to lose. Once his case hit Rome, it was pretty much certain to go against him. He no longer had the French telling him not to be hasty, to string it out so that they could keep the Pope on side nor did he any longer have his pet cardinal running the English church for him and urging him to be patient. Now was the moment to use Parliament, but Henry did nothing. He made no move to give himself more power or to take over the church. Nor did Henry make
0: any move to marry Anne Boleyn. She herself, along with her family, were now strutting around at court as if the battle was already won and they were the new royalty, to Belay, the French ambassador whose letters home are, as we've seen, a key source for this period, perhaps rather a neglected one. They're in very difficult French. Dubelle describes Thomas Berlin, Anne's father, as si Gloria Folle, so gloriously stupid. He was going round boasting that anyone who wanted to matter would have to dance to his daughter's tune. But he was also complaining that nobody seemed to like her anymore. Henry made absolutely no preparations to marry her. It's true that in December 1529 he finally gave her a title, but while he made her father the lofty Earl of Wiltshire, he gave Anne only the lowly nonsense title Lady Anne Rocheford. Oh, and he sat her next to him at his table. But that effectively made her nothing more than what the French called the king's maîtresse en titre, the king's official mistress.
1: Certainly not a candidate for a royal marriage. There was an ugly scene at Greenwich on the 30th of November 1529 when Catherine shouted at Henry that he'd stopped visiting her apartments and her bed. This was months after the aborted divorce trial and Henry had mumbled about being too busy. What it tells us is that Henry had been, quote, visiting her apartments, at least until recently. And it was Catherine who presided over the Christmas celebrations that year and Catherine who went on summer progress in 1530 more and more courtiers were now turning their backs on Anne and siding with Catherine. Well, Anne herself could see that Henry was not serious about making her his wife. On that same day, when Catherine had shouted at Henry in Greenwich, 30th of November 1529, courtiers report that Anne later also screamed at Henry over supper. Quotes, "'Farewell to my time and youth spent to no purpose at all.'" She was now probably twenty eight an old maid in 16th-century terms. Nobody seemed to know what to do.
0: As for Henry, he went on doing nothing. You might even argue that it wouldn't have been surprising if, now that the international situation had shifted, Henry had lost interest in Anne. Plenty of influential courtiers, including Anne Boleyn's own uncle on her mother's side, the Duke of Norfolk, who was one of the most powerful men at court, were not only losing patience with Anne, but openly favouring ditching the unreliable French and returning to the old Spanish alliance. Henry's sister was one. Her husband, Henry's best friend, the Duke of Suffolk, was another. Before long, Suffolk would be going round saying that it was time, quotes, to unseek the king from his folly. Anne's uncle Norfolk told the Spanish king's ambassador that he would rather chop off one of his hands than get involved in the divorce. My king, said Norfolk, in a phrase that reminds you of the kind of thing the Pope had been saying, will be the
1: emperor, that's Charles V's, slave forever. Henry's inactivity makes it seem all the clearer that for all the fuss he'd made, the whole divorce had always been for him primarily a strand in his foreign policy. It hadn't been about marrying Anne, and it had not, up till now, been mainly about Imperium, taking control of the English church. It had been part of his strategy of ditching the old Spanish alliance and teaming up with the French... And now look where that had got him. Isolated in Europe, screamed at in front of everyone on the same day by his wife and his mistress, presiding over a bitterly divided court. No wonder he sank into indecision and inactivity.
0: But then, in August 1530, Henry suddenly and unexpectedly comes out fighting again, as we shall see next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.
1: Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod.